Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast all about video games. My name's Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. 333 megahertz. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. We need access to weapons. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Yeah! Announcement! Announcement! We'd like to take a moment at the top of the episode to direct you to our social media channels. Check out our YouTube channel. Search for Our Three Cents and you can find all of our amazing video content there, including streaming content and some lovely little mini documentaries from Chris about the history of video gaming. We also have an Instagram channel where you can find our videos as well. We are at O3C Podcast and there's also loads of fun images that we're posting all the time about what we're doing, what we're up to, what goes on behind closed doors and that sort of (laughs) stuff. We also have a Patreon page. If you're really enjoying the podcast and you fancy supporting us a little bit more than you already are just by listening to the podcast, then head over to patreon.com slash our three cents and you can find some amazing perks that you can get in exchange for a few pennies of pleasury, such as full bonus episodes, deleted scenes and custom artwork, the opportunity to record an episode with us. The list goes on. Not for many more things, but you know it's good. <laughs> so uh, do please check that out. So, this week, we have our 15th favourite video games of all time. But, before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz! Steely nerves. Who was the character introduced in the 1994 2D platform game Sonic & Tails 2? Or Sonic Triple? Oh. Oh. Is it Amy Rose? I, I, it was on the Game Gear, and I never played it. Um, I'm going to say... Uh, I, I haven't got a clue. I, I don't have a clue. I honestly don't. Well, the answer is not, I haven't got a clue, I'm afraid. Sorry, I don't. It is also not Amy Rose. So the point rolls over to next week. Oh, who was it? Who was it? The correct answer was Knack the Weasel. Oh, fuck. Oh, of course. <laughs> I, I mean... I I have a rough image in my mind of what he looks like, but only because I think he's in Sonic, the Sonic Fighters game. Yeah, and he was in Fighters Megamix because of that. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's annoying. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an incredibly obscure question. And and again, because you, that honestly wasn't a multiple choice card. No. And yet sometimes it's like, who was in Tomb Raider? Multiple choice. <laughs> Linda Frift. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. Larry Crowbar. <laughs> Tom Brader. <laughs> Archaeologist. <laughs> oh, enough of that. Gosh. Lord love you, son of Adam. So what have we been playing this week? Christopher, do you want to start us off? What have you played this week? I have beaten Super Mario 64. Hooray. 120 stars. Done. And well done. It holds up, doesn't it? It holds up overwhelmingly. And I know we've had kind of like discussions here and there as we were going through them and have our little niggles and stuff. But I've mentioned a few times that a game from 96 still plays better with the exception of the camera than most platformers released today. And and it's a game that I, I'm still surprised at how stuffed it is with, with just like nuanced movement tech that means that every goal is potentially non-linear. You know, you, you can make your own way to it, to whatever the finish is. And, and it's a game that, yeah, it's got its frustrations because it is the age it is. 
but it's still relatively balanced and and mostly fair. Like last night, me and Georgia played the first few stages of the Crash Bandicoot remaster from a few years back. Oh yeah, and and thinking about Crash, it it released basically simultaneously alongside Mario sixty four. It was ninety six as well. And and both games were attempting to answer the same question of how do you push 2D platformers into the third dimension? And and Crash Bandicoot is not relatively balanced and it's not mostly fair. <laughs> and and I can't imagine how upsetting it must have been for the developers at Naughty Dog to to pick up Mario after they'd shipped Crash and just sat there thinking like, this is such a leap over our own product. <laughs> like it, it's not even funny. There is no comparison point between the two. Finishing 64 again was really great, but it was slightly bittersweet i think because i i'm conscious at 33 years old now with with work and life commitments and everything else that my time for playing big games is getting less and less as i get older and and every time i sit down and i say like am i going to play a new game am i going to revisit an old game if it's a game like this that is 20 hours long you know that's three or four weeks worth of free time or, or in this case three <laughs> yeah. or four weeks plus some extended sessions in my half-term holiday at the moment yeah, I've had to really sit down and think like, okay, was a game that I've already beaten on the N64 and DS worth a third playthrough to 100%? And it was, absolutely. It really was. <laughs> but also this, this bittersweet thing is because I know that this is likely the final time I'm going to give this game my undivided attention. Like short of maybe like dropping in and just playing a few stages here and there. I, I'm not going to sit down and spend 20 hours to beat Mario 64 again in my life. I wouldn't have thought. Mm. And and as much as I was quite disparaging, like when when this package first dropped, because Nintendo didn't really give it the love I thought it deserved to kind of tart it up and and make Mario 64 in particular, you know, the shining example of, of what it deserved and and what we know it can be. And, and whilst I stand by those comments, I, I think what is released here is is a version of the game that people can play in the future, and and it's not a case then of having to rig up your N64 that looks awful on a, on a modern screen or, or worrying about losing save data on an old cartridge. Like it's something that now has given this game a new lease of life. And and even if me personally, I'm, I'm not going to grind my way back to 120 stars and, and Rainbow Ride again. It's really good to know that 64 will just carry on like its lineage can can continue and also like anytime you want you can jump in and do that uh that wing cap <laughs> level just for fun i love it it's my favorite part of the so game no one ever no so some of the end challenges in that game are brutal really really unfair like i said how balanced the game is mostly but there are a few at the end that are very <laughs> patience testing <laughs> I, I think to finish it though was really nice and, and it was this exercise in reminding myself what why i like the game so much why it's revered by kind of you know other developers and other players and and i think it is it's an imperfectly perfect game for for the time it came out it is unparalleled uh, and it's it's influence is still felt in all sorts of of games you know industry wide and you know as much as it then like i said has taken me weeks to get through i'm really glad that i have to kind of almost give it a send off because like i say i'm i'm probably not going to do that again so yeah i'm really looking forward to starting sunshine tomorrow with with my brother because uh he owned a GameCube when we were younger. I never had one. And that was kind of like his Mario game. And and he's looking forward to seeing me start that, as I'm sure you would be if you were here as well, Jonathan. I really would. I cannot wait to hear about uh, your uh, your adventures through that. Yeah. Although I did see today that uh, some modder has managed to integrate ray tracing into Mario 64 <laughs> on the PC. <laughs> I mean, that port is something else. Metal Mario has never looked better. <laughs> So um, there you go. That's another 100, 120 stars right there. <laughs> Minty, how about you? What have you played this week? 
Played a little bit of Tetris 99. Got back into that now oh. that we've got Ooh. the TV. Tasty. Ah, yes, lovely. So that's looking nice. Also uh, started playing Mario 35. Ah, how are you getting on with that? Uh, I actually quite like it. Um, I have no idea how to win. <laughs> and I'm not very good at uh, classic... Yeah, I'm not very good at Mario Brothers. But I don't know, it's just a nice thing to just sort of pick up and lose a couple of minutes in here and there. What else have you been doing this week, Minty? So here's what I'm doing. I am simultaneously playing through the new Pokemon Shield DLC, the Crown Tundra. Mm-hmm. Um, I have... It's basically just a load of set pieces to get you legendary Pokemon, which is you know, which is fine. And I'm also currently playing through a second save file so that I can not only get you a Zamazenta, Jonathan, oh, yes. as I started to do quite a while yeah. ago. But also, there's a couple of sets of Pokemon in the Crown Tundra where if you choose one, you can't get the other one. Yes. So I'm just going to pick the other two on this save file and then shunt them over to my game on via Pokemon Home, which I discovered you can do. Amazing. Which is good. Well, that's really, really cool. I um, Yeah, when I got my Animal Crossing Special Edition Switch, I couldn't transfer the other profiles that I had on there because I didn't have a Nintendo Switch Online account for them. And I had, because I had started playing through uh, to get you a Zacian to trade for yours, Amazenta, on a second playthrough. But yeah, unfortunately, that was lost when I got my new console. But I think, um, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying the Crown Tundra so far. I've, I've only, I mean, I've probably only put probably not even an hour into it yet. But yeah, I just, I just, I love Pokemon. And I think it's come along at the right time to sort of, uh, get me back into it and i can see myself very happily playing through sword and shields uh, again and then uh, yeah doing exactly what you're doing so we can complete our collections hmm. that's actually all my week has consisted of because if you've listened to the most recent spooktober special episode you'll know that i spent most of my week playing resident evil games after a well you, you you can listen to the episode and hear my thoughts but I, I i spent a couple of hours playing the original resident evil on the switch and then spent uh, a good chunk of the week playing resident evil revelations which i had a fantastic time with so uh yeah if you want to hear about those check out that episode Whoop. so should we move on to the rankings yeah let's do it <laughs> starting this week we have Minty. Ah. Minty, can you please tell us about your 15th favourite video game of all time? Lay it on us, pal. I often think about how bad video game movies are, and I wonder why that is. It seems like it should be easy to make a film about the beloved characters we've grown up playing as, but then maybe therein lies the problem. We embark on a grand adventure that lasts tens maybe even hundreds of hours with these uh with these characters the challenges we overcome are emblems of our growth not only as players but also furthering the development of our on-screen avatars in places that growth is earned and we invest heavily into it 90 minutes that some dink wrote in a room with no consideration for the source material <laughs> or just how high the stakes are in creating something true to the spirit of the game it's probably why there hasn't really been any good movies about video games, I think. Games, based on movies and TV shows, on the other hand, have a much higher success rate. We see that with all the old um, Telltale Walking Dead games, anything that Lego decides to make a tie-in game about, sometimes even things like The Simpsons or South Park. 
if we just forget that South Park 64 was a thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, dross. If you think that was bad, when me and Chris used to make games on the Games Factory, I remember somebody online somewhere attempted to make a first-person South Park game using the Games Factory. And, I mean... Fair play to I him. I wouldn't even say technically he did it. He certainly, he certainly bloody tried. Yeah. A heroic effort. Yeah. Well done, that man. But I think the crux of it mm-hmm. is that games based on movies let us become those iconic characters that we love on the screen. And in game-based movies, the uh, becoming that you've done in every game you've played means nothing. There's no influence, there's no decision-making, there's no no investment, I think. Today's game is a sequel to one that I played to death on the N64. <laughs> Quite randomly, actually, because I have no... Uh, interest or knowledge of the series it was a part of up until that point but yeah as you might have guessed from the intro the game is based on the movie and interestingly enough it was the n64 game that got me into the films and then it was the films that got me super super hyped for this game to come out this was back in the days when places like uh Curry's PC World and the like weren't all in one massive shop <laughs> and there would be always be like a little demo stand where you could try out all the new consoles and new games well, let me tell you, the day I stood in the shop absolutely devouring the demo of Star Wars Rogue is not one I'll forget for a long time. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent. I mean, what, what is there to say about this game that Jonathan hasn't already said around uh, 35 weeks ago? Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader. How is this so low? <laughs> <laughs> It's an incredible adaptation, which is why it's so high, not only to play, not only in reverence to the source material, but just in how good it looked as well. The models were crisp and smooth, the ships were a joy to control. The amount that was happening on the screen at any one time was just breathtaking. You're immediately thrown into the attack on the Death Star in the first level. I mentioned this in episode 50, I think it was. The, that's a decision that really set the tone for just how confident the developers were in this absolute masterwork. You can see for miles, the near unending surface of the Death Star is crammed full of relief, detail and gun turrets. It wasn't just a bumpy surface. There was an incredible sense that if it weren't for the constraints of the mission, you could probably loop around the entire circumference of the space station. There weren't that many missions that were featured in the films, and that's fine, because the ones that were there are really the only ones that you need. The Death Star attack, the Battle of Hoth, and the anxiety-inducing blaster bath that was the Battle of Endor, Mm. along with the uh, destroying the new Death Star as well, um, as, as the grand finale. Everything in between those is a really nice little paralogue to the film series. It fleshed out the efforts of the Rebel Alliance, whether that be stealing an Imperial shuttle uh, for security information or rescuing Allied prisoners from the Maw. Or my particular favourite, piloting a B-Wing for the first time to bring down an entire freaking Star Destroyer. (laughs) It was just... Wow, everything that made the films so exciting, so joyful and just essential watching have been crammed into this one game to not only make it just a, a good time game to play but i think i think it's an absolutely essential game and i really really wanted to be remade we've had battlefront we've had people being able to control sort of you know individual people stick them back in the in the a-wings and the x-wings and 
let, let's show them how good a Star Wars game can really be. I am very excited to try Star Wars Squadrons, the new game. In full VR. Mm. In full VR, yeah. Oh. I've now got my... Uh, <laughs> I've got my Oculus Link cable that's arrived now, so um, yeah, that's that's potentially something else that I'm going to try and do in the next in the next week or so is uh, is get that set up with my computer. And I think Star Wars Squadrons feels like the game I should uh, I should break break it in with properly. I think, and uh, apparently it's 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 quite something. I think it's m- more of a different game to to the Rogue Squadron games than um, than it sounds. But uh, I'm very excited to see what what is in there. And who we could be in for something special, I think. Mm. Oh, I hope so. I did like all the um, all the little, like really sort of tight movie tie-ins they did, like um, particularly the ones where you're you're in the Millennium Falcon. There's the one where you're 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 Luke Skywalker piloting the uh, the big the big gun turret as they all go past when they're uh, oh yeah escaping. I think the Death Star for the first time in A New Hope. Yeah. And then uh, going through the asteroid field, it's just those nice little homages that were sort of tucked away in bonus missions that I really loved. Yeah, it was really, really nice. It's sort of, you know, it knew not to hang its hat on on those as like the main things being like, oh, look, you can do this, you can do this. Yeah. They were, like you said, the, the balls of them to be like, you can do that, but, you know, why not do this? Yeah, we'll do the, uh, we'll do the absolutely iconic uh, mission from the first film. And then we'll go from there. <laughs> and it never felt like they blew their load too early, did it? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't like, not. Oh, I just want to play the Death Star attack again. It's like, oh no, I, I really like the variety of these missions. They all feel so mm. Star Warsy. And then you could unlock missions where you could play as Darth Vader and do some non-canon yeah. shit, which was great. What if Darth Vader had won the Death Star attack? What if, what if they'd lost? And then he just went and blew up everybody on Yavin Four anyway. Incredible stuff. Exactly. You'd be looking at a Hyrule Historia style uh, split timeline then, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, fortunately, we don't have. <laughs> we, to be honest, with the amount of retconning that's inevitably going to go on, we, we may well end up actually with something like that in the next in the next uh, swathe of Star Wars films whenever they decide to do whatever they're going to decide to do with that. Yeah. But for now, let's just remember a simpler time when stuff happened and that was that. <laughs> wonderful thank you for that minty so next we have my game my 15th favorite video game of all time number one five it is a brilliant game this week i think it's safe to say that anyone who has played this game would have it appearing pretty highly up in their lists of their favorite games It's, it's certainly ranked very very highly in many greatest video games of all time lists it's a game of pure unadulterated escapism epic adventure swooning soundtracks magic swords goblins dragons it doesn't get much better than skyrim does it it doesn't does it (laughs) 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 so i have skyrim standing in to represent oblivion on my list as well which for a long time was also sat in my list as a separate entry somewhere in the top 30 i think but given how similar the games are in many many ways I mean, the main reason is I didn't think I'd be able to write two different bits of stuff about them. So I've happily conglomerated them together with Skyrim as the poster boy, which I think is reasonable as it is a a bigger and better, more sophisticated game. But let me take you back several years when I discovered Oblivion on my brother Alex's recommendation. 
I was working for Game at the time, so I picked up a copy of the Game of the Year edition on the PC with my staff discount. I stuck my map of Cyrodiil up on my wall, found my best knapsack, and <laughs> dove into one of the deepest and most thrilling adventures I'd ever played. I'm pretty sure that Oblivion was one of the first like, open world games I played. I mean, certainly of like, you know, what we've come to know as like the modern open world game. And I, I don't remember feeling overwhelmed by the sheer size of the world or the sheer amount of quests and side quests and just, just the sheer number of Nern routes surrounding me. I just got stuck right in with a, with a sense of childlike, reckless abandon. And before I knew it, I was looting dungeons, fighting off hordes of monsters, brewing alchemic concoctions, crafting weapons, picking herbs, traversing portals to the realm of oblivion and helping numerous people in villages with a whole amount of arbitrary daily chores that for some reason I prioritised above the looming apocalyptic threat. I remember being able to see the imperial city, the capital of, of Cyrodiil in the centre of the map and, and being able to see its monolithic white gold tower on the horizon for miles and miles around. There aren't many key moments that remain in my mind from Oblivion, but the one thing that has stayed with me was the incredibly weird and surreal piece of DLC called The Shivering Isles. Now, I talked about the DLC from Skyrim in, in one of our uh, Patreon-exclusive episodes, uh, which was all about DLC, so do feel free to head over to our Patreon page if you fancy hearing that one. But I didn't touch on the, the DLC for, for Oblivion, and The Shivering Isles really focused in on a section of the lore from the Elder Scrolls that, that I really enjoyed, which was the, the Daedric Princes. Now, now the Daedric Princes are almost like the, the gods of, of this world, and they each have their own plane of oblivion that they have control over. And in Oblivion, there are 15 specific Daedric quest lines that you can undertake from each of the Daedric Princes, and then you get a Daedric artifact as a reward, which may take the form of a piece of equipment or armour or weapon or some other piece of something that gives you boosted stats. And each of the princes were surprisingly well realised in the game. You would stumble across one of the, their shrines and be treated to a lovely, juicy quiche slice of lore about them. <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, I hate quiche. It just made me laugh to use that as a phrase. I, I really hate it. It's one of my, one of my least favourite foods. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy absolutely despises it as well. What's the point? Sammy. Have an egg. <laughs> the, the only the, yeah, the only place to appropriately eat quiche is at a funeral, <laughs> she says. And, uh... <laughs> a little uh, solo solo quiche, yeah, the little pathetic little cases. Yeah. At least then you get more crust for your buck. Exactly. I, I, I love a quiche, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so there oh. was uh, Clavicus Vile, the Prince of Trickery and Bargains. Mayrunes Dagon, the Prince of Destruction, Change, Revolution, Energy and Ambition. Or there was uh, Meridia, the Bright Lady, the Daedric Prince of uh, Life. And then there was Sheogorath, the sovereign of the Shivering Isles, who is the Daedric Prince of Madness. Mm. Now, aside from having some rather large Lovecraftian overtones to them that really warmed my interest up, they all piqued my interest in, in their own individual ways. And it was great to see um, Sheogorath essentially get his own game in, in the Shivering Isles expansion. And like I said, that the, this whole quest is just fully laden with weird you arrive on the Shivering Isles as an event called the Grey March is about to occur, where another Daedric prince called uh, Jigalag, who is the Prince of Order, and the Grey March will end in the destruction of the Isles, and uh, Sheograth employs your services to stop Jigalag, but the story itself takes every twist and turn under the sun, 
It's got a real Alice in Wonderland madness feel to it. Nothing is what it seems and everything seems what it isn't. And there's so much surreality in the design of the world. Like the landscape of the Isles is split into two main areas. You've got mania and dementia, which, I mean, for a start. Mania is filled with high saturation colours, big, bold, weird flowers and plants. And dementia is filled with swamps and twisted trees that almost look like they're contorted in agony it, it's a stunning adventure like I, I i wonder actually if anyone's done i don't know like a mod of it in skyrim that could be played a bit more easily than it would be to get oblivion and the dlc now maybe because i mean yeah it's i it'd be i'll have a look into that because it's well worth checking out even, even if you just have to like watch a playthrough on, on youtube it's uh it's fantastic just just from a storytelling point of view it's brilliant like I talk about the fantastic DLC for Skyrim in that Patreon special about the beautifully homely and comforting Hearthfire expansion that allows you to build your own house and raise a family, the Dawnguard expansion that introduces vampire and werewolf factions into the game, centering around an incredibly fun quest, and the spectacular Dragonborn finale expansion that sees you reach your full potential as a, as a Dovahkiin. So Oblivion was outstanding. And what did Skyrim do better? Namely, everything. Like, a lot of areas of the game were largely unchanged or unimproved that didn't need improving. Like the core engine of the game, the way you equip armour and weapons, the way you buy things and, and the broad strokes of how you craft and all that stuff. But it was just a much, much more refined experience in every way. Uh, and most importantly, there were dragons. <laughs> there were, yeah. But the world itself just felt a lot more alive. It, it obviously looked a fair bit better, but then, you know, when you're playing on a PC, the way games look and perform is a bit more organic than witnessing an entire generational shift on a console. And Oblivion had gorgeous art design, and it's just been built upon further in Skyrim. And, and Oblivion built on what was established in Morrowind. But there were a lot more environmental effects, which was, you know, essential, really, as Skyrim is set in the north end of Tamriel, and there, there are lots of snowy mountains and vast tundras to explore. Although one of my favourite locations to explore, always the, the underground dwarven uh, dwellings, loads of steampunk design, big brass cogs, and uh, they just felt very cool, very detailed. There were also a lot of refinements made to the way you level up and use your skill tree, allowing you to just really focus your character around how you wanted to play the game. But let's talk about the dragons. Like, with so much fairly unchanged in the core gameplay of Skyrim, I think Bethesda needed something more than we can make games look prettier now as an excuse to develop a new instalment in the Elder Scrolls series. Like, what could the increased processing grunt of a new generation of consoles and a new wealth of PC tech allow them to do with the game more than just add more frames per second, more pixels, more polygons? The answer is dragons. Oh, you've got to I, stop I, today. I didn't plan on saying it like that. <laughs> I mean, we've seen dragons in, in games before, but but not like this. Not not with, not with this size, not with this level of detail. You know, they aren't just enemies to fight on the map. E even like, you know, the, the, I mean, the biggest enemies like trolls and giants and golems. The dragons felt like parts of the world itself that had ripped away from the earth and taken flight. They, they were titanic, truly awe-inspiring and, and, uh, and, and dangerous. If a dragon attack was happening, like all the citizens of like a village or town you were in would just lose their collective shit as they see like, <laughs> a shadow pass over their home. And the sheer level of devastation they can cause is catastrophic. 
Like one thing that, that always takes me by surprise is, is how big they are when they land on the ground. I mean, my goodness, big old boys, big <laughs> chaps. It's not just that they appear as these excellent mini boss fights that mean you need to use all your cunning and variety of weapons and powers at your disposal to defeat. The dragons are also central to the story, which gives them a, a lot more weight and, and a level of importance in the game. Like when you're communing with Parthenax, the dragon on the mountain, this is, this is all the more impactful because you know the power that he's capable of from the fights you've been through on your way to reach him. Obviously, you've got to hope that he overlooks the, uh, the, the enormous amount of dragon scales and dragon bones you're probably carrying in your knapsack so he doesn't take offence. Because that's, that's, a, that's a bad icebreaker, isn't it? <laughs> What's that? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. What's 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 new with you, Charles Martinet of Mario fame? What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christ. <Go back. laughs> oh boy. All oh, under the power of my form. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he went for a slightly different timbre with this, but there we go. The other thing the game has up its sleeve with the dragons is is the way your character embraces his destiny as as the dragonborn. And then the dragonborn is is one who has the body of a mortal, but the blood and soul of a dragon. And the amount of lore surrounding what a dragonborn is and, and what it means to be one really makes you just swell with with pride and power as you embrace your newfound abilities, like, like being able to use shouts to wield the power of the dragons, which is is just the epitome of Oh, just the undeniable feeling of raw power when you're just standing on a mountain, shouting into the sky and bringing down a dragon. Hooey! I mean, <laughs> that's great. And in the Dragonborn expansion, you finally get to like experience the full power of the dragons and you can then tame them and ride on them. And oh, I mean, my goodness. Do you remember in the old TV series Nightmare? Yes. There were sections of that where the dungeoneer would get to ride on the the dragon yeah that always like always wowed me as a kid i mean i'm not gonna look up clips on yeah YouTube, don't. I'm probably, don't, don't I'm sure do it that. probably doesn't hold up <laughs> but, but again the dragonborn expansion really capitalized on that childlike sense of adventure and imagination absolutely amazing as a side note for a bonus point in the quiz, can either of you tell me the name of that dragon from Nightmare? Not a chance. <laughs> no, I never watched no, it. No way. That is a shame. That is no a shame. points. The correct answer is Smirkanorf. <laughs> of course. So, we've talked before about how playing some games since finalising this list has made us readdress our opinions on some games on the list. Some games we replayed and regretted placing them so low, like Panzer Dragoon Saga. Yeah. Some games, you know, we came to think we may have placed too high once once we'd had more of a chance to reflect on them. And some games we've played future iterations of the game in its series or even, a, you know, a spiritual successor like Chris, you said you had with Inside, yeah. you know, made you rethink Limbo's placement yeah. on your list. I've got a bit of a similar situation here with this game. And it, it's not that Skyrim isn't an incredible game. It, it is. And, and I'm, I'm not done with talking about just why it is so flipping good and deserves its place at number 15 on the list. But reflecting on Breath of the Wild a couple of weeks back when it appeared on Minty's list, you know, I mean, it, it like we said then, it, it makes you realise a lot of shortcomings in, in Skyrim and it's fairly loose and easily exploitable construction of the game. But to be honest, like the main game that, that made me reanalyze what was possible in open world games was when I finally dove deep into The Witcher 3 on the Switch earlier this year. Now, 
you know from the fact that because I was playing the the solid but murky Switch version <laughs> of the game, yeah. that my my praise of The Witcher isn't down to how lovely it looks. But playing The Witcher made me realise that you don't need to sacrifice great writing and amazing story pacing to make a game huge, expansive and epic. And like the character work, obviously I know a lot of, obviously The Witcher is built on a series of books, so there's, there's a great foundation there to work from. And I think there is certainly merit in like the mute protagonist setup of games like Breath of the Wild and Skyrim, but but I mean, my goodness, did you know The Witcher give me a newfound appreciation of, of of what was possible, just in terms of of storytelling, you know, and in terms of character work, whilst also having that same sense of escapism and feeling like you know exactly who the character is, but you can still go anywhere you want, and that's it's brilliant. And I, I'm I must say I'm actually really excited for The Witcher Three to be upscaled on PlayStation Five because. I think I'll probably revisit it on there. But, I mean, can you imagine like what the shift is going to be like going from the Switch version to like fully ray traced 4K <laughs> version on my, on my PS5? It's about eight I mean, times the resolution, I think. Yeah, I mean, literally, <laughs> if not more so at times, ooh, when it just globules into one big pixel on the screen when you're playing in handheld. <laughs> but yes, I'm going to continue talking about just why Skyrim is so great. I said at the start that Skyrim is pure, unadulterated escapism. And, and I think that is the best escapism you can experience in any medium. And a big part of that is, I think, down to the audio components of the game. For a start, Jeremy Soule's soundtrack is gorgeous. It's at once sweeping and epic, but also subtle and supportive of the other design elements at play. And every single track fits every part of the game it's in so well. It's, it's, it's almost unbearable. Like, the, the quality of the music is certainly on a cinematic level. But to get those gameplay elements to, to mesh with the right resonance with those pieces of music to give you the same orchestrated feeling of, you know, watching Lord of the Rings. That's also a technical marvel to be able to engineer that. One particular track that I, I always come back to on the soundtrack is the Streets of Whiterun, a beautiful, beautiful piece that accompanies you whilst you're pottering around the town of Whiterun. It's it's just perfection. I'd highly recommend pop, popping it on and and uh, and, and let it let it drift you off to sleep <laughs> although the next track is like <laughs> so you know make sure you've got the track on repeat or just just you know just the one one track selected but the sound design also has a lot to contribute as well you can stand still anywhere on the map and just fully absorb the atmospheric noise from the wind rustling the trees to the sound of some nearby wildlife scampering into some bushes the faint reverberating tone of a nern root plant on the other side of a gently babbling brook it's extraordinary. It's just lovely. And the sound effects of like the weapons and armor bring real weight and heft to that side of the game. And the sound and volume of the dragons was just awe-inspiring. There's a brilliant description, <laughs> rather arrogant, I might say, that Smaug gives of himself in The Hobbit. The developers of Skyrim have basically managed to create that experience. Smaug says, he said, my armour is tenfold shields, my teeth like swords, my claws are like spears, the shock of my tail like a thunderbolt, my wings are a hurricane, and my breath is death. <laughs> that's what it sounds like. And that's amazing. He's a big boy. It's a shame that Skyrim VR didn't really build on the game in the way that perhaps it did in our expectations of what that experience would be. I can remember thinking when I heard that a VR version was being developed that if it worked... I wouldn't ever want to leave that world. Like, why would you? Uh, but unfortunately, as is the case with a lot of games that are ported to VR instead of being built as VR games, you know, from the beginning, it had to make so many compromises to the game to make it work in VR that it actually felt like more of a removed experience. It didn't help that 
the resolution was incredibly low and so you lost a lot of that subtle environmental detail that made you feel fully immersed in the world but the control setup just flat out didn't work and it doesn't help that the foundation of the control system was first person dual stick console controls not a great place to start if you're you know going to make compromises but they did try to implement motion controls for movement which would see you point at a spot and teleport to different points which it ruins that sense of being grounded in a real environment and it's not a game you could play for the hours you need to play skyrim in for in vr it would just melt your brain and your eyes but i think that there is still an amazing open world pure escapism experience to be had in vr and it is my ardent hope that bethesda are thinking about vr from the start in their development of elder scrolls 6 and we might see something reminiscent of what that experience could be in, I guess, about 20 years when that game finally comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a while, isn't it? <laughs> now, while Skyrim has got more content that you can shake a Nern root stalk at, in fact, I think we mentioned this before, that there's actually code in the game to generate miscellaneous basic side quests ad infinitum. And I think I must have lost over 120 hours in the game easily on the PC. The downside of this is that for me, and I know this is a bit different for you, Minty, the game doesn't feel like it has any real replay value for me like i did buy it on the switch in a sale because i love the idea of going through the game again and having it on a handheld but i got about as far as i did in skyrim vr which was about an hour or two in before i started to remember how much of the game i'd played already Hmm. and i just sort of didn't want to go back into that like a a while back chris you spoke about open world game the open world game yeah that lovely little indie game that that boiled the essence of open world games down to a mini map and a simple checklist. And I think that's what Skyrim ultimately is, or or certainly what actually most open world games are for me, just glorified to-do lists. And and, and just like if you've had a really productive day in your life and you've checked off loads of chores and jobs you needed to do, if you woke up the next day and that list was back, it reappeared, (laughs) you wouldn't want to go through it again. And I I just just didn't want to go through that on Skyrim again, which is sad in a way because I'd love to lose myself in that world again. And I think, you know, I haven't played it for so long now that if I loaded up my old save, I I wouldn't have any better clue what to do. But it just means I'm, I'm just... I'll be first in the queue for Elder Scrolls 6 when it does arrive. I can't wait. To be honest, until then, the memories I have of Skyrim and listening to the soundtrack, that's enough for me to relive just the incredible adventure that I had. And uh, yeah, I love it. Can't really beat it. Although, for the next however many weeks, I'm going to tell you 14 very definitive reasons why uh, why it can be bettered. (laughs) I, I don't know whether or not, Chris, if you've played it, I've played some Skyrim. Well, I've I've seen Skyrim more as a, a vicarious experience than anything else. So I, I had an ex-partner who played it for the best part of 150 hours. And I was there for many of those. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I've seen big chunks of the world and, and I kind of, I definitely get, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that you're describing that sort of mm. escapism and the 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 grandiosity of the whole you know the the place that is Tamriel mm. but for me personally I, I haven't played it that much myself like I, I tried Skyrim VR for a few hours same yeah. as you even as someone who hadn't played the game before it, it was still uh, I don't know how to describe it re- restrictive in some ways and, and challenging in others and across the few hours I played I, w- I was trying to use the the PlayStation Move controllers for for every step I would take forwards to be like okay now I've got the hang of of just getting around then I would forget how I was supposed to enter combat or, or use weaponry 
or I, I could get quite adept at that and then not know how to actually walk backwards anymore. It's There's a lot to kind of internalize to how to use quite a limited number of buttons to do an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. So that was a challenge as well. And, and I do wonder if even now, like with your with your Oculus, because the controllers are a bit more expansive because they have those analog yeah. sticks, if if Skyrim would be a better fit for that platform. I've added it to my wish list on Steam. So when it comes yeah. on a, a sale again, if it's you know less than a tenner, I probably will pick it up and give it another go. It's especially yeah. with the the increased power and and resolution of the Oculus uh, Quest Two. I think you know yeah that could be that could be good. And lastly, but not leastly, we have Chris Dow's game. Christopher, would you please tell us about your 15th favourite video game of all time? Yes, I can and I will. In in writing this, I, I started thinking about how we define ourselves at, at the age we are at the moment. And I, I think for me, like if someone asks who I am or, or what I do and, and what I'm like, you you always start now as an adult saying like, well, for me personally, I'm I'm an arts teacher at a special needs school. I enjoy music. I'm passionate about video games, even though I don't always have time to play them. And the older we get, the more we focus on our jobs or our careers as markers of who we are and what we've achieved. When you're a kid, though, it's your hobbies that are always frontline when you describe yourself, because when you are young, every single fucker is at school. <laughs> so the benefit of using that as a defining characteristic is it's kind of moot. You know, if, if you're between the age of four and 18, you're probably doing education. So that's not the thing that makes you who you are. And, and at different points of my childhood, I would have described myself as a Sega kid when I was really young. Then a little bit later, I was the Sega Saturn kid, more specifically. <laughs> Singular. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the being the definite article there. <laughs> there was a number of years where I would have defined myself as being super into Sonic the Hedgehog to the point where all I did outside of playing the games in the Mega Drive was just draw pictures of the characters standing around. Yeah, I went through that phase. Yeah, we all did. We all did. I mean, a little later, I was I was an N64 obsessive. Then I was a PlayStation 2 collector when I was a little bit older. Um you know, at the time I was probably 15 or 16, I, I was spunking all of my limited teenage funds up the wall just to pick up whatever games I could for the PS2. Probably everything else as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I was setting that one up. I was letting someone deliver on that one. At the start of secondary school, though, or at least a few months into that kind of transition into a second phase of, of academia, I was a Pokemon kid. Oh. And Pokemon Red is my 15th favourite video Yay! game of all time, which makes... Generation yeah. one of the Pocket Monster franchise officially R3 Sense approved. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Now, as you mentioned a few episodes ago, Jonathan, I was temporarily the cool kid having imported the game from America. These days it's bananas, but if, if you see something you want that's releasing exclusively somewhere else, ordering is as simple as just saying, yes, please, and then checking <laughs> the letterbox a few days later and your international bounty is there. Yeah. But in 1998, this was an ordeal. I had read and I had reread an article in Computer and Video Games magazine, which detailed the the RPG. You know, I, I probably read it 150 times, and had made it my mission to to badger my dad into helping me get hold of the game because I knew yeah. it wasn't going to hit the UK for a long time. I loved my Game Boy at the time, or, or rather, it was my Game Boy Color at, at that time, and it seemed just unreal looking at these screenshots that a game of this scope could exist on a handheld. Back then, we found a company that offered the title for import. 
We we nervously offered dad's card details over the telephone. <laughs> and then some weeks later, I received my package. And during the weeks that preceded that arrival, I would attempt to soldier through the opening of the game using a, a half-finished translated ROM of the Japanese edition that I found for, for the PC online. I would spend every moment of my one pence a minute allotted internet time looking up information about the series. You know, I, I wanted to know more about the monsters themselves. I wanted to know more about the story and its lore. And, and I just talk about Pokemon obsessively. When the cartridge was finally mine on UK soil and sat snugly in my Game Boy, it is all I played and thought about for months. You've both had this on your list. We all know what this game is. You know, you've talked about the current iteration of Pokemon today on, on this show. We know what it looks like. We know what it, how it plays. But I think there are, there are two wider themes at play in Pokemon that I want to bring up separately that are why this means so much to me. I think, firstly, Pokemon is a game of collection. And that, that phrase that went with it, the gotta catch them all thing, would like inadvertently become the motto for the way I would go on to curate like CD collections when I was a teenager. Now the way that I, I collect vinyl records instead, it would define the way I've constantly added to or, or tweaked my video game library that I've talked about quite a few times on this show. Like I, I'm not a hoarder in a conventional sense, but I really enjoy stuff. And, and I think the, the thrill of having like a set of something, the joy of, of adding to an expanding pool is probably something that stemmed from from pokemon because you know I, I can't say for certain whether it was that 150 or so hour grind of pokemon red's pokedex that paved the way for this kind of latent obsession but i can't recall a time prior to this game when i was so aware of the idea of of missing something that i really wanted whether that be in a digital product like like a game like pokemon or, or physically to actually own things secondly though and i think this is more important pokemon is a game about friendship and although later games in the series would have a more kind of overt friendship or, or happiness metric for each Pokemon, like I think that was Generation 2, but I'd kind of tapped out by then even. <laughs> the first core title was still inherently a game about bonding and friendship. And from your choice of starter Pokemon through to what ends up being your kind of jobbing team of six that take down the Elite Four, you can't help but become very attached to the, the critters in your party. You know, the, the animated series would then double down further on this connection between Ash and his brood, but also focus on the, the kind of interpersonal friendships between Ash and the other trainers he would bond with. And in real life, Pokemon fed into how I defined myself and was, was a big part of how I interacted with others at school. Like before Pokemon, I think me and you, Jonathan, were already pretty firm friends. But once I'd coerced you in the ways of the Mon, yeah. we were then like inseparable at school yeah. for months and months and months. Still there now, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean that we're here over two decades later talking about the power of games like Pokemon Red is, is a real testament to those months and to the power of friendship more broadly. Yeah. And, and playing this game alongside one another at that time, experiencing the, the thrill of exploration and discovery together is just one of the most important and formative experiences of my entire life. <laughs> and, you know, it, this this is going to sound really soppy, but even though my Pokemon Odyssey with the games essentially faded with the launch of Generation 2, like I've mentioned, I, I love this series for what it represents. And, and I genuinely, and I mean this wholeheartedly, I, I love you. Like <laughs> on, on this show, we, we've discussed titles like Tony Hawk's 2 on the Game Boy Advance mm. and, and Rayman on the Saturn and Monkey Ball on the GameCube. These are all jonathan dunn games <laughs> but pokemon red and blue were were chris and jonathan games yeah <laughs> and my experience with and and kind of enjoyment of, of pokemon red came down not only to what was happening on our little tiny unlit screens at break time 
But because of the conversations we'd have in classes and the times we'd hang out at each other's houses and the other games and films and, and other media we'd go on to experience together as we grew up. And, and it's just, it's impossible to overstate the importance of this game to me mm. and, and in, impossible to overstate the importance of, of our friendship, like truly impossible. Mm. And, and now, you know, we're, we're sitting here, like I say, many years on in 2020, I, I've watched you become happily married to a, to a wonderful <laughs> partner. You're, you're expecting your first child imminently. Yeah. And, and it fills me with, with a type of joy that is, is so pure and so <laughs> rare that it makes me want to well up and, <laughs> You know, Pokemon Red to me is is a game about friendship because, you know, I, I do love you. <laughs> You're one of my very closest friends. And the 15th favorite video game is is a testament to essentially that that bond starting. And it's it's fantastic that we still have that now. Oh, it really, really is. Yeah. Well, obviously, obviously the feeling is mutual. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. You're ab- yeah, you're absolutely right. Can't say anything more, otherwise I'll cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mm. Now we are Pokemon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. What a lovely note to end on. And that wraps up this episode with three games, which are great. First of all, we had... Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 Rogue Leader. And then we had the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. And then we had... Pokemon Red. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any episode, please do share the podcast on social media. You can also reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash our3cents. You can chat to us there about these games, games that you're playing, things you might like us to answer or discuss in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I live at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm currently situated as Clement underscore Boo. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash our3cents, and check out some of the amazing perks that we have on offer there. And until next time, we shall bid you adieu and say get ready for three 14th favourite video games of all... Uh, three fourteenths of a video game. <laughs> yeah. Three games that we have designated the 14th best video games of all time. Bosh. <laughs> Amen. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the ShackCast, the official Shack News podcast, Shack News uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hunter Hunter, Yu Hakusho, Literary Analysis, Comparative Localization, Jojo References. The works of Yoshihiro Togashi hold a specific kind of magic, and the people who seek to examine their roots and spiritual descendants are known as the Spirit Hunters, available on the Greenlit Podcast Network.